So as I said at the beginning of the service, if you were not here, today is our church anniversary. Six years ago, almost to this day, we began this church as a gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna, Virginia. We were meeting in a school nearby, overflowed that space eventually, and then settled into here. And we've been continuing on year after year through a lot of changes, new people coming, others leaving. And it's a, now into our sixth year as we're trying to understand our calling and identity. I put it akin to like being at the stage of a young adult in college or just out, trying to figure out what God wants you to do in life. What are you made for? Why are you here? But I think we're in that stage over the next five to ten years to try and understand what is our unique calling at this cultural moment and in the place that God has put us. And so the question I want to start with today is where are we? Not we as a church, but where are we as a country, as a culture? Where is this place that we live? Very simply, we are divided, right? About a year ago, there was an election. The day after the election, entirely half of the country was in complete and total dismay. Weeping, not sure what to do with life. Where was it going to go? Three months later, that same half of the country was incredibly angry, ready to react against everything that had happened. And you know, if the other person had won, the other half of the country would have done the same exact thing. We are a very divided country politically, geographically, racially, religiously, generationally, socioeconomically, on pretty much every point you can possibly be. We are polarized, is the way you describe it. David Kinneman, head of the Barna Research, in his book Good Faith, based on surveys, said many people in surveys think it would be difficult to simply have a conversation with anyone that's not part of their group, whatever their group is. We are a divided country. We're also atomized. What does that mean? Basically particles all over the place, spread out as individuals, fragmented. In his 2000 book, Bowling Alone, Robert Putnam identified that we are in a culture that is less and less inclined to civic associations. Three generations ago, nearly everyone belonged to things like a Lions Club or a Rotary. They were part of a, of a church. They were members of something, multiple things. They were even part of bowling groups and had bowling shirts and a bowling night. Nobody does that anymore. Sorry if any of you do, but... <laughs> We're disconnected from one another. In 2013, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was selfie, right? Most popular word that had gained hundreds of thousands of, of projections globally. And basically the idea behind a selfie is that every single human being is their own personal brand. I am marketing, selling me. I need to protect my place in today's economy. We are individualistic and transient and fragmented and what one sociologist called fluid. We change constantly. The moral code of today, according to David Kinneman, meaning this, 90% of people agree with these statements as the moral code of today, to find yourself, you need to look within yourself. To be fulfilled, 
pursue what you desire most. Enjoying yourself is the highest goal. 90% of Americans agree with that. This means we are incredibly individualistic, fragmented, atomized. We are also the most irreligious culture in American history. Pew Research said that one-fourth of the U.S. qualify as nuns. That means that you are atheist, agnostic, or not religiously affiliated in any way. That's higher than it's been ever, and it's trending that way. It's trending that way because the younger generations, those 18 to 24, for instance, instead of being a quarter nuns, are a third. One-third of people in the 18 to 24 category say they do not believe in God, they have no religious affiliation, and it's quite possible they have never been in a church service of any sort in the past year. One-third of 18 to 24-year-olds. Jean Twang, a sociologist of generations, wrote a book on millennials, has just put out a book on the next generation, which she's calling iGen. iGeneration is right here. <laughs> that is, people born between 1995 and 2010. And she's simply identifying some of the trends with iGeneration. One of the things she says is that they are less and less religious. People that are in college or just out or in high school now are less and less religious than their previous generations at the same age. And what she writes is this, in a society where people, and she means young people, hear, if it feels good, do it, and believe in yourself, religion seems counter-cultural. Now, what that means is, going to church is weird. It's strange. It's not a normal thing to do if you're 16 or 22 in today's culture. It is counter-cultural. It is less and less normal to show up at something like this. We are more irreligious and secular. And yet, I actually think there's some good in that, too. Why do I think that's good? Because there's very little nominal Christianity today, at least in cities like this. Fewer people simply show up because, well, you're Lutheran or Episcopalian or Baptist, or Catholic, you're supposed to go to church on a Sunday. There's actually more clarity and authenticity now than 40 or 50 years ago, when it was weird if you didn't roll out on a Sunday morning to go to a church. I saw this years ago when I was in college at a secular university, a state college. There were 16,000 undergraduates, and I had a faith of my own. And what I saw was, my, my estimation was, there were about 500 students out of 16,000 they were showing up at fellowship groups, InterVarsity, Campus Crusade, Young Life, FCA, these different college campus groups. And that made it very easy to understand who was serious about their faith. It was not normal to show up to one of those. College kids, the college that I went to, didn't go to church unless they really meant it or were actually searching. I loved the clarity that provided, and it enabled me to connect with other young men. And what I saw was young men and young women connecting with one another, going far deeper in their faith than they ever possibly could because they were independent on their own, trying to figure it out with one another, and they knew we need each other to survive the next four years. My faith and many of my peers' faith grew deeper and faster during those four years than at any time in our lives. We are irreligious. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. The bad thing is that we're a more hostile culture. 
not just religiously, but on everything, the other side is not just wrong, they're evil. And they need to be eliminated. Just today, on the front page of the Washington Post, was an article uh, about a poll of political division in the country. One poor gentleman was interviewed, Gene Gardner, who said this. He's just a random guy. He said, when people have an opinion now, they don't just say it across the dinner table. They put it on Facebook. Everything gets amplified and more angry. Another woman said, it feels like you can't have a thought without people throwing rocks at each other. And it's true that there's more hostility towards Christianity. David Kinnaman, in his 2012 book, Unchristian, said 60%, over 60%, basically two-thirds of 18 to 24-year-olds think Christianity is hateful, judgmental, and hypocritical. And they want nothing to do with the church, or Christians, or Christianity. Given the current culture that we're in, divided, atomized, irreligious, and hostile, what are we, as Christians, what are we as a church supposed to do? If you meet a bear in the woods, what are you supposed to do? It's either fight or flight, right? When I was in college, I went hiking towards the Appalachian Trail west of Charlottesville and was hiking up a Jeep trail all by myself when all of a sudden through the woods I could hear rustling and then all of a sudden two black dogs, little black dogs, ran across the path in front of me. I froze because having gone hiking in rural areas, I've seen wild dogs before, dogs that basically got loose from people and they were maybe rabid, I don't know, I just wanted to stay away so I froze hoping the dogs would just keep going. And a few seconds later, a mama bear came through, following what was not two dogs, it was actually two cubs. I realized if I had been 30 feet ahead on my hike, I might have come between mama bear and cubs. And at that point, I don't know what I would have done. The normal reactions you're supposed to do in dangerous situations is either fight, pick up sticks, rocks, fight the thing, or flee, right? Fight or flight. My tendency is freeze. I'm not sure what that would have done if the bear actually saw me, but that was my reaction. Somebody comes to rob my house, I'm supposed to fight or flight, I'm going to just freeze. Maybe that'll, I don't know. They won't see me? In our culture today, many Christians turn to fight or flight. Fight is a common reaction that Christians have to a culture that is hostile and divided. Fearful of where the country is headed, many Christians turn angry. Now they want to stand for truth, speak for what's right, fight for a country they care about. And look, I believe there is a place for civic engagement. There's a place for people entering the political sphere, for protesting, but not out of anger and hostility and fear. At worst, people outside the church see Christianity as being co-opted by a political party or simply worried about losing power. David Kinnaman wrote, we have become famous for what we oppose rather than who we are for. The who is supposed to be Jesus. 
People who don't fight, Christians who don't fight, tend to do the opposite, which is flight, flee. Rod Dreher, an editor, writer, and Christian, put out a couple of years ago what he called the Benedict Option. You see, in the 6th century, the Benedictine monks started, and the reason why St. Benedict started the Benedictine monks was because the barbarians had taken over Rome. Rome had become a Christian nation or Christian empire and then started declining. The barbarians come in. Benedict starts monasteries following an order. And over the course of centuries, they actually maintain the Christian faith in these monasteries behind walls, protecting culture and scripture and history of how things were done. And Rod Dreher suggests the Benedict option is probably where we need to go in the coming century. Strategic retreat is what he calls it. A place for a counter-cultural communities that just survive the next hundred years. Now, I do think there is a place for that. There's a place for counter-cultural communities, people who are committed to one another and willing to be faithful regardless of what the culture thinks. But not when it's driven by fear. Many Christians simply try to avoid unbelievers the immoral, people that might contaminate. Or they're simply waiting for judgment day, praying for God to come and strike all of them. Not you guys, them. The Jesus option is very different than either of those. The Jesus option is this, die. You want to follow me in today's culture? Okay, die. Jesus says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. What is your cross? Your cross is not your mother-in-law or your AP teacher, nor is it even your struggles and your sinful self. The the imagery that Jesus is using is one that he will step into, right? The only people who were crucified in ancient Rome were rebels trying to overthrow the government. The only people who bared crosses were failed rebels who were paraded through the street carrying the emblem by which they would be crucified in order to display to the entire city how shameful their failure was before they were then nailed to the cross and killed, proving that they were forced to submit to the state. The state wins, you lose. That's taking up your cross. Your cross and my cross is willing submission to the authority of God. Willing to lose everything to him. Tim Keller put it this way, for us the kingdom of God begins with weakness, relinquishment, giving up our rights to our own life. It begins with admitting that we need a savior. We need someone to actually fulfill all the requirements and pay for our sin. That's weakness. How many of you in here have ever owed a debt that you couldn't possibly repay by yourself? My guess is only a few in this room have ever had to rely on the generosity of someone else, a parent, a friend, a sibling, to pay 
a loan or credit card debt or cover repairs you simply could not pay. It's hard to receive that in our culture. It's hard to not be self-reliant. It's weak, weak. The rest of you, probably the majority in here, because we're a high-functioning East Coast city society, have had to work to pay off debt. You've had student loans, a mortgage, a new roof on your house, and you think about how much you make, how to save money, how to put some aside. You're gonna work, but over time, bit by bit, you will pay off the loans. You will maintain your independence, your self-reliance, and your pride. You didn't need anyone else, you don't need anyone else, and that is strength. But from that mindset, you will never know the gospel. And you can have no part of Jesus. Saving faith in Jesus involves realizing that you owe a debt you cannot pay. And he paid a debt he did not owe. Only in weakness can you have Jesus. Now let's transfer that to our lives in this culture. Being a Christian isn't about my rights, or my happiness, or my success. A few pages later, Tim Keller writes, taking up your cross means for you to die to self-determination, die to control of your own life, die to using him for your own agenda. Die. He puts it another way in verse 24. For whoever would lose, save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The word that's translated life there is a word that you actually know the root of the Greek. It's suke, P-S, uke, or psyche, psychiatry, psychology. You know, it basically means your soul or yourself. Your suke or your psyche is the you that's you. The way we talk about it today is your identity. This is what makes me somebody, why I have meaning, who I am, my psyche. Every culture, every culture has always had ways that you had to achieve something in order to become somebody. If you were in a traditional culture, clan or family was elevated, right? So you had to create a legacy, keep your honor, and then you would be a somebody. We don't elevate family or honor the same way. We're an individualistic culture, not a traditional culture. Instead, we elevate personal achievements. Status, fame, money, a fulfilling career. If you have this, then you'll be a somebody. But both individualistic and traditional cultures are all performance-based. Do something, and then you'll be somebody then you'll have a psyche that matters. Then you'll be a self. Jesus offers a whole new way to find yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. In other words, I'm not in control. It's not my life to do what I want with. And follow me, Jesus. Lose your life. Die to your agenda. Live for him and his kingdom, not yours. 
The way to true life is dependence and trust and weakness and humility. How do we posture ourselves in this world today? Die. But also be courageous. He goes on to say, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Jesus calls us to boldness, not for a political or religious or personal agenda. It's boldness for me and my words, is what Jesus says. In the Gospel of Mark, it says, for me and the gospel. Boldness for Jesus and for the gospel. That's our calling in this culture today. And that's actually really hard to do. It's hard because Christianity, unlike in the first century, is not very popular today. Believing that Jesus is the only way, or believing in the Christian take on morality, will get you crucified on social media today. It's really hard, much harder than 2,000 years ago. I'm being sarcastic. It's not. It was much harder back then. But it's the same basic calling to not be ashamed of Jesus. I find this really hard for me as a pastor to not be ashamed of Jesus or the things he stands for because, quite frankly, I don't want to be disliked. I don't want to be dismissed as hateful, judgmental, bigoted. I don't want that. But it's also because I know and care about actual people who disagree with me. That's why it's hard to stand for Jesus. To the extent that I do have boldness, it's because I actually love those people. And I believe Jesus. In a divided and hostile culture, Jesus calls us to humility and courage. Humility and courage are sorely lacking in our culture and in most of the church in America today. You can find a lot of what we would call courage, but without humility. But I don't think I would call it courage. I would just call it meanness. People who are angry and mean, they act like bullies. They stand on what they think is true. And you see this on cable news. You see this on rants, on social media. You see this in violent protests. People who sound courageous because they believe in something to be true, but there's no humility. It's just anger and meanness. But you also see what you might call humility without courage. And I don't know that I would call it humility. I think I would call it fear of not being accepted and liked. And so we end up being people who are just wishy-washy. Fluid beliefs that mold to whatever the prevailing winds say. What you believe right now will be different five years from now and ten years from that. The gospel produces a unique level of humility and courage. We talk about this all the time. The gospel says you are more sinful than you're willing to admit, but more loved in Jesus Christ than you dare to imagine. More sinful than you're willing to admit, more loved than you dare to imagine. That produces both humility and assurance. It's humility because I am sinful. I am not better than you 
or whoever the you is, no matter who the other person is, I cannot look down on them. I am sinful, they are sinful. But I am fully assured that I am loved in Jesus Christ. Not because of anything I did or do. And as a result, I'm able to love courageously. Because I don't need to protect myself, defend myself, attack others to feel better. In the gospel, there is no place for superiority about somebody else's beliefs or morals or politics. There's no place for superiority. The gospel should change the way you approach every person who is different than you. There's no grounds, if you believe the gospel, for looking down on anyone. And look, as Christians, we do this because we're human beings, not because we're Christians. You look down on people because you take grades seriously and that kid doesn't. Because you're good at sports and that kid is terrible at them. Because you're successful and that person is not. Because you're intelligent and that guy is not. We all have ways in which we measure ourselves. And we look down on those who don't measure up. The gospel allows for none of that. The gospel also does not allow for fear of not being liked or accepted or fear of what if those people get in power and what happens to everybody in the country. And The gospel says you have everything by grace. It's nothing you deserve. You're no better. But the gospel says you have everything, everything by grace. Nothing can take that away. Humble, and assured. David Kinneman, quoting Barry Corey, suggests the church and Christians need soft edges and firm centers. We as people and as a church need soft edges and firm centers, the opposite of an M&M. We need to be people with soft edges willing to learn from and love others with differing or opposing beliefs and lifestyles. To learn from and love others who are completely different and opposed to you. But we also need a firm center to hold to the core truths of the Christian gospel. That they are different and they are essential. And the core truth of Christianity is Jesus. He is Savior and he is Lord. What is CCB's calling in the coming years? Humility and courage. We are a gospel-driven, externally-focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna, Virginia. You can read through our vision and value statement, which talks about having a passion and heart for people outside of the church, which talks about letting the gospel change us into people who are absolutely humble and transparent with one another, who are willing to break down the walls between the secular and sacred, who are humble and courageous. We are to be people marked by radical humility before others. People should identify you and me as humble, which means I don't think I'm better, but also marked by being faithful and courageous with our faithfulness. But faithfulness for Jesus, not other agendas or causes. This means Basically, love. Humility and courage mean love. You love people who disagree with you, which means you need to know them, 
Spend time with them. Listen to them to understand them. It's what John Tyson, the pastor, called agenda-free relationships with people you disagree with. That should mark us as individuals. But we should also be marked not only by love for others, but our love for Jesus. For his kingdom and his purposes more than our own. More than our own purposes and kingdoms. Now if you do that, if we are humble and courageous, if we're loving and we love Jesus, it will not guarantee success. Not by our world standards. As in, things will go easy, people will like us, we'll prosper. But there's also still never a reason for worry or fear. What if this country becomes not just less Christian, but anti-Christian? What if we get marginalized? What if we lose our rights and our freedoms? During the first three centuries of the church, that's where it stood. And it grew faster and more dynamically than any church ever. Remember this, Christian. On the far side of the cross is not a tomb. It's an empty tomb. And Jesus says in his own phrasing here, when the Son of Man comes in glory, one day the Son of Man will come in glory. This church, this country, may not last forever in the way that you see it right now. But there is one who is king, and his kingdom will come. He wins. Humility and courage. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow the king. That's our calling. Let's pray. Jesus, in a divided and hostile and individualistic culture, we are pushed to and fro. We deal with the constant battle lines. Give us eyes to focus on you, crucified and risen, and to see in your cross the way our lives are called to go. Surrender, humility, weakness, but looking to you for our courage, fully humble, fully assured, fully faithful. Be with us this year and in the years to come. Amen.